Would you remain standing and let's read our scripture together? Acts 1, 15 through 26. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company was persons was in them all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is God's word. You may be seated. title of this message is uh, The Office. If you were expecting Steve Carroll, uh, you'd be disappointed. Um, this is the third message in our new series, Through the Acts of the Apostles, that we titled Turning the World Upside Down. There is uh, perhaps no story in the Bible more intriguing, more tragic, and more consequential than the story of Judas Iscariot the man who betrayed Jesus to the Jewish ruling council. We're going to examine his story uh, this morning, and in that process I'm hopeful that uh, we'll learn more about who he was, what he did, why he did it, and the outcomes for both him and the fledgling church. And perhaps, hopefully, each each of us can take some lessons from this passage for our own lives and our own personal relationships with the Lord Jesus. But before we get into the story of Judas, I want to pause for just a moment to reflect upon the significance and I think poignancy, it's not a word I use very often, but the poignancy of the the very first line of the very first verse in today's scripture text, which reads, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Or we might abbreviate that and simply say, in those days, Peter stood up. And I love that this passage begins with this statement. You may recall uh, his spectacular failure on the night when Jesus was betrayed and arrested. Um, That having declared loudly and proudly that, that even if, Everyone else would follow in, and he, he, may, he almost swore an oath to Jesus. 
that even if everyone else should fall away, he never would. Right? But before the morning came, and he was up all night, before the morning came, he had denied three times to perfect strangers that he even knew Jesus. He was even intimidated by a 14-year-old servant girl, this big, strong Peter the fisherman. And when he realized it, the Scriptures tell us that he had gone out and wept bitterly, a defeated man. But later, following Jesus' resurrection, the Lord appeared to Peter and engaged him in a private personal, very tender conversation. Three times during that conversation, Jesus asked him, Simon, do you love me? Three times, Peter answered in the affirmative, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And three times, Jesus replied, feed my sheep. As if to say, your failure, Peter, is not final. I love you, and I know that you love me. I have a plan and a purpose for your life. I have work for you to do. Here it is, feed my sheep. Be the shepherd of my sheep. Nourish my sheep. Care for them. Tend them. Feed my lambs. Such a tender moment. So don't fail to recognize the power of what is happening here in this moment in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, when Peter stands up among the brothers and assumes the leadership to which and for which Jesus had restored him. I think it's a beautiful thing. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. As we approach the story of Judas Iscariot, as it is unfolded in this passage, it's important to recognize that Peter briefly recounts his story as background to the main point, which is addressing the immediate need presented by Judas' absence, which was the appointment of another apostle to replace him another who would take his office. And you say, well, why did there have to be another one? Well, stand by. Let's begin by understanding the office of apostle. Understanding the office of apostle. Early in Jesus' public ministry, uh, you might recall that increasing numbers of people uh, began to follow him so that nearly everywhere he went, whether he wanted them there or not, there were crowds waiting for him following him around. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's literally everywhere you went, there was a crowd that was there for you. But the gospel writers each made note, all four of them, that, that there came a day early in his ministry when Jesus went up on a mountaintop. He spent the entire night on the mountain praying to the Lord, uh, to his heavenly Father. And the next morning, I don't know if he slept or not. may have been sleepy. Maybe that explains why he chose Judas. I, I don't know. I don't think so. 
The next morning, he called 12 from among all those crowds, just 12, who had become his followers, and he called them apostles. His intention, and by the way, apostles means simply means sent ones. Today, we would call them missionaries. And he called them so that they would be with him and that in time he would send them off to preach. Robert Coleman, in his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, observing this call to be with Jesus in order to be sent out to preach, wrote this basic axiom, witness is withness. Witness is withness, W-I-T-H, withness. What does that mean? It means that you can't preach the gospel without, with any power or any credibility unless and until you've been with Jesus. Now notice, he called them to a person, that is, he called them to himself. The, the calling was to be in relationship with Jesus. And then he called them to a process, a process which consisted of three years of being with him nearly 24-7. So he called them to a person, he called them to a process, and then he called them to a purpose, which was to preach the gospel of the kingdom as he would direct them. And finally, he called them to possess and to exercise delegated power. Delegated power. It wasn't their power. It was his power, the power of God working in them and through them. To these 12 men, Jesus gave authority over unclean spirits to cast out demons, to heal every disease and every affliction. In the description of the activity of the early church immediately following the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Luke tells us in Acts 2.42 that they, that is the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching So the apostles became for the church not only the authoritative eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, his miracles, his teaching, his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and finally his ascension, but by the Holy Spirit they also became the authoritative interpreters of the gospel, of the life and the ministry and the passion of Jesus, In light of the Old Testament law and the prophets, they were the ones authorized and empowered to tell us who Jesus is, what he did, why he did it, how he did it, and what it means to be his follower. Paul, the Apostle Paul, later wrote to the believers in the city of Ephesus and said that the apostles, along with the prophets, form the foundation on which the church, which is the household of God, is built. Listen to the way he put it. So then you, you meaning the Ephesians, who were Gentile believers, you then are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built, notice, on the foundation of the apostles' And the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, here's just maybe a little piece of Bible trivia, but I'd like to point it out anyway. 
Who came first historically, the prophets or the apostles? Not a trick question. The prophets, obviously, right? The Old Testament prophets. So they came first, but now to that august group of of biblical writers, prophets and, you know, all those guys, the apostles are added. But who gets first billing here in Ephesians 2? Not the prophets, but the apostles. So there is a sense in which the apostles have a higher authority and exercise a more significant ministry even than the prophets. I'm not taking anything away from the prophets. But the ministry of the apostles is greater and supersedes the ministry of the prophets. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus told the 12 apostles that they would play a significant role in the coming kingdom. Matthew 19, verse 28, Truly I say say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a little, there's a little wow right there, isn't there? I mean, can you imagine hearing that from Jesus? You're, you're, you're going to sit on a throne and judge the 12 tribes of Israel in my kingdom? By the way, judge, judging there is not uh, necessarily uh, a judicial kind of thing because we know from the book of Judges in the Old Testament that those were leaders, leaders of the nation of Israel. In addition to uh, all of that, of course, the book of the Acts of the Apostles informs us that the apostles led the way in personally taking the message of the gospel to Jerusalem, outward to Judea, then to Samaria, and to the what Jesus described as the uttermost parts of the earth. And so they, they took the, the gospel all around the Mediterranean region and beyond into Europe. And they did that at great risk and at great personal cost. So the apostles, if we're trying to understand the office of apostle, we we need to understand that the apostles played a significant role in the earthly ministry of Jesus, yes, but also then in the life and the mission of the church right up to today. And as we have read, they will again play a very important role in the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth. And now listen, into that distinctive group of men, Jesus invited a man whose name was Judas. He was from a small town in the extreme south of Israel known as Cariot. So Iscariot, or Judas Iscariot, means Judas from Cariot. In the same way that Mary Magdalene means Mary from Migdal or Magdala, however you choose to pronounce it. Cariot is mentioned a few times in Scripture. Joshua 15.25, Jeremiah 48.24, Amos 2.2. Alternately, some have suggested, and I, I think it's a shaky theory, <laughs> 
But they've suggested that Iscariot may have simply been a nickname, meaning man of the city, in contrast with the other 11 uh, who were all country boys, you know, specifically from the region of Galilee. And, and the, the, those in Judea kind of thought that those from Galilee were hicks, kind of like the rivalry between Centralia and Chehalis, you know. Isn't that right, Vince? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's now turn uh, to the important matter of judging Judas. And that probably sounds somewhat inappropriate to you. <laughs> and let me just assure you that uh, I don't mean judging in the ultimate sense. That, that there is above our pay grade. We'll leave that to the one who alone possesses the authority to make those determinations. But I, w- I want to invite you to join with me in, in judging Judas in the sense of examining him, investigating him, taking his measure. Who, who was Judas Iscariot? What was he all about? Uh, why did he do what he ultimately did? So let's begin uh, by simply revisiting his story. You can read it in all four Gospels. Uh, Matthew 26 and 27, Mark 14, Luke 22, John 18. Luke's account in his gospel is the the shortest of those four, but it includes all of the important facts, so I'll use that one. And I I know that you appreciate it when I choose brevity. Uh, Luke 22, 1 to 6, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Let's break that down a little bit. Notice, first of all, that that the chief priests and the scribes, this is these are the, the, the elite Jewish ruling council, chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death for they feared the people. Well, what does that mean? It means at least this, that they were trying to find the right time and the right means so that Jesus might be apprehended and killed by stealth without triggering a riot or worse, an uprising, an insurrection. They especially wanted to avoid the upcoming Feast of Passover in Jerusalem because uh, on that occasion, the, the city would be packed with both residents and pilgrims that had come up to the city for the feast. Jesus was popular with the people If a riot was to happen at Passover, then uh, the Romans might come down hard on the Jews in the city and perhaps beyond as a demonstration of power. It was incumbent upon the Jewish leadership in in Jerusalem and all all over Israel, for that matter, to maintain the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And that's why we read in verse 6 that Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus in the absence of a crowd. Second, please uh, make note that Luke says that, that then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Pretty damning statement. The 
This fact is mentioned actually repeatedly in the gospel accounts. John reveals that prior, prior to the meal that we call the Last Supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Later on, John records in, in chapter 18 that there at the table, Jesus refe- revealed to the disciples that one of them would betray him. And having said that, he outed Judas as the traitor. And John says, again, that Satan entered into Judas and he left to carry out the betrayal. But prior to that, and and this is so remarkable to me, in a demonstration of grace upon grace, while washing the feet of his disciples, Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot as well. Amazing grace, mercy, loving kindness. Satan, having entered his heart to betray Jesus, Luke tells us that Judas went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Matthew adds that during this little conference, this little tete-a-tete with the chief priests, Judas negotiated a price of 30 pieces of silver for delivering Jesus over to them. Now, I don't know the relative value of 30 pieces of silver in those days. But as I read this, I notice that they didn't blink. They didn't hesitate. They didn't just show him the money. They gave him the money. And Luke says they were glad. And so I'm going to conclude that they considered that price to be a bargain. I think they went, hey, great. That's easy. No wonder they were glad. But notice the verbs that describe Judas' activity. He went, he conferred, he consented, he sought an opportunity. Those are all proactive verbs. These words don't describe a man who's out of control. They describe a man who willfully, calculatingly, and methodically carried out a plan of his own making. So it would be inappropriate to simply say, as Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made him do it. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So for each of us, as it was for Judas, the words of God to Cain, clear back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, continue to ring true. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. That 
expression, its desire is for you, means its desire is to control you. Its desire is to master you, but you must master it. Well, the opportunity that Judas was looking for presented itself readily. Judas knew all the places that Jesus frequented, where he was likely to go on that evening. And so that night he led a crowd from the chief priests and the elders carrying swords and clubs to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he found Jesus praying with the 11 disciples. Judas had informed them that the one he would kiss is the one they should arrest. And and isn't that interesting? Because it tells us that they, they didn't even know what Jesus looked like. Jesus was a relatively obscure figure. He wasn't on television every day. They didn't know who he was. So he came up to Jesus and said, Kyrie, Rabbi. Kyrie, Rabbi, or greetings, teacher, and kissed him. And Jesus answered Judas, those immortal, immortal words, Judas, do you betray me with a kiss? And then he said, do what you came to do. And so the soldiers who were with Judas seized Jesus and led him away. Later, when the chief priests and the scribes, uh, or elders, that, that is, had condemned Jesus to death and had handed him over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, we read that Judas changed his mind, mind that he became remorseful, he became repentant, and he took back those 30 pieces of silver to the Jewish leaders and said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And he threw the silver into the temple and went out and in his extreme remorse hanged himself. Because, of course, by that time it was too late. And here's the point of some confusion and disagreement in the Gospels. Matthew says that Judas hanged himself. Luke says in Acts 1 that Judas acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. I don't even like to read that. I imagine if I was a 10-year-old boy, I'd think that sounded kind of cool. But which is right and which is wrong? Is it possible that both are right? Maybe they're simply looking at the same event from two different angles. So one of the things that, that I've observed that biblical scholars have done is that starting from the premise that Jesus, uh, or that Jesus, Judas rather, did indeed hang himself, It could well be that in time his dead body began to swell, eventually fell from where it was hanging, striking the ground, burst open, and perhaps we'll never know. The field that was purchased was called a keldama, or field of blood, and you can actually still visit that field today just outside of the city of Jerusalem. Well, it's only appropriate, I think, for us to ask why it was that Judas did what he did. And it's hard to know, actually, the precise reason why Judas betrayed Jesus. We may may never know until that day when we know all things perfectly. But, But there are some other clues in the Gospels that help us understand a great deal more about him. In John 12, 1 to 6, for example, the Apostle John says that Judas was a thief. 
He was a thief. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. By the way, wouldn't that be weird to, to be sitting in a room and look at, looking across a room at a guy that had been dead? Welcome to dinner, Lazarus. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Let's just pause right there for just a moment. What a moment that was. Uh, An act of sacrifice in presenting, anointing Jesus with this precious perfume. Wiping his feet with her hair. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, John, just editorial comment from John. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He was pilfering. Leonardo da Vinci, in his famous painting, The Last Supper, portrays Judas holding that money bag. Perhaps Paul had Judas in mind when he wrote to Timothy, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And Jesus tells us, If that was true of Judas, Jesus tells us that Judas was an unbeliever. John 6, 64 to 65, Jesus said to his disciples, but there are some of you who do not believe. And notice the parenthetical comment here, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. See, Jesus clearly had Judas in mind when he spoke these words. And it's a remarkable realization, I think, that even though Judas was one of the 12 apostles and spent most of three years with Jesus among the disciples, doing what the disciples did and had a front row seat for his miracles and his teaching, that Judas remained an unbeliever. Can you imagine that? I've, I've met people, heard people down through the years who have said, you know, if only I had been there, maybe, maybe I would have believed. If I had only been there with Jesus and saw what he did and heard him teach in person, that I'd believe. And Jesus says that's, that's not the issue at all. 
Jesus says that it was never granted to Judas Iscariot by the Heavenly Father that he should, in fact, believe in Jesus and receive the salvation that only God can bestow. And not only an unbeliever, but just a few verses later, Jesus called him a devil. (laughs) Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So when Jesus called Judas a devil, what was he saying? He was quite clearly asserting that Judas was of the devil. That is that in his thoughts and actions, he was governed and prompted by Satan himself to oppose the purposes of God and the Son of God. And it doesn't end there. In in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, at verse 12, he called Judas the son of destruction. And we might ask here, what kind of destruction? What kind of destruction did Jesus have in mind? Well, the word itself tells us it's the kind of destruction which results in a disconnection from the source of life. And therefore, the loss of life, the loss of eternal life, which is to be forever excluded from the kingdom of God. Some have theorized that Judas' motivations were more political than spiritual, that his hope was that maybe, just maybe, by inciting a provocation in which Jesus, I don't know, felt threatened, that he would rise up and lead a political and military revolt that would result in Rome being overthrown and the kingdom of the Messiah, the son of David, being established on earth. It's an interesting theory, but we have to acknowledge that all of the scriptural evidence, including the testimony of Jesus himself, indicates that it really has no credibility at all. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear that on documentaries about Judas Iscariot. Jesus was not surprised at all by Judas' betrayal. The prophets had foretold it. Jesus had anticipated it. And so we should never think of it as something unexpected, something that's, that has disrupted in any way the eternal plan and purpose of God. And, and in that prayer in John 17, Jesus said to his Father regarding his disciples, not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. That the Scriptures might be fulfilled. So back in Acts 1, 16 and verse 20, Peter stood up and said to the church, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. The Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Two different prophecies from two different psalms. Psalm 69 was known to the Jews as a messianic psalm. It's really all about Jesus. And when you read it uh, with any measure of carefulness, you come to that realization. And in fact, it's applied in the New Testament to Jesus five times. The first of the two prophecies, 
cited by Peter, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, is found in Psalm 69, verse 25. The second prophecy, which which is let another take his office or his place of leadership, is from Psalm 109, verse 8. Hence the title of this message, Let Another Take His Office. Well, beginning at verse 21, then, of the first chapter of Acts, Peter announces the necessity of another taking Judas' place among the twelve. Here's what he writes. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That expression, to go to his own place, is a euphemism for having gone to hell. They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So now let's turn and spend just a few minutes measuring Matthias. Matthias was the man selected to fill the vacancy left by Judas Iscariot. What do we learn about him in these six verses? The answer is very little. (laughs) We don't really know much about Matthias at all other than that he met the basic credentials of an apostle. Again, verse 16, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And we know from the gospel writers that that, uh, in addition to the 12 apostles, there were others who followed Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. And we kind of get the sense sometimes, I think, reading through the gospels, that they were shuffling in and out. And that was true for some of them. But there were others who followed Jesus from the beginning of his ministry, which was immediately preceded by his baptism by John the baptizer in the Jordan River. And from that starting point, we can surmise that Matthias was there at the Jordan and a few other things as well. In chapter 10 of his gospel, Luke records that early in his ministry, Jesus sent 72 of his followers out ahead of him to all the places he was preparing to go. And in those communities, those 72 men were to heal the sick, to announce that the kingdom of God had come near to them. And Matthias was undoubtedly one of those 72. Further, we can safely assume that Matthias was known and well-respected by the other 11 apostles and the church at large. Why do I say that? I might be reading into the text, but I think that we would be mistaken to assume that there were only two among the 120 men in the church who met the basic credentials. They had to have implemented a vetting process through which these two men, Joseph, Barsabbas, and Matthias, became, as it were, the finalists. At that point, in Luke's words, these two men were put forward by the church. It had to have been an enormous honor, really, I mean, for sure had to have been an enormous honor, first of all, to have even been considered. 
to be one of those who was given consideration to be an apostle. And even greater to have been one of the two still standing at the end of a careful and prayerful process. Oh, there was another very important aspect of this whole matter of receiving an apostleship, and it had nothing to do in the final analysis with a congregational vote. No one who was ever numbered, write this down because this is something important to know, no one who was ever numbered among the apostles was elected by the church, or for that matter, elected by the other 11. Every apostle, including Matthias and the latecomer Paul, was specifically appointed by Jesus Christ himself. You say, how's that so? Well, first of all, they left it to the Lord. So let's talk about leaving it to the Lord. At verse 23, having put forward Matthias and Joseph Barsabbas, they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen, past tense. Which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place? And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven. Notice notice they did exactly what they should have done. They left the decision to the Lord. They put forward these two men. They prayed that the Lord would show them which one he had chosen, and then they rolled the dice. <laughs> if, you're un, if you're unfamiliar with the story right now, you might be thinking, what? They did what? They rolled dice as a means of trying to hear from God? Irresponsible. Careless. Cavalier. And if that's what you're thinking, it's understandable, but it's entirely missing the point. Listen, the text tells us that their fundamental belief was that Jesus had already chosen one of these two men. They knew that he was far more interested than they would ever be in a selection so essential as this one, so essential to the the growth and the vitality of the church and its mission, that he would certainly communicate to them whom he had chosen, and therefore it was incumbent upon them to listen. And it may come as a surprise that the ancient practice of casting lots was, in the history of Israel, an accepted and approved means of discerning the will of God. Listen to Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Wisest man who ever lived said that. King Solomon. So it's essential to a correct understanding of what the apostles and the church were doing to realize that the casting of lots was simply part of their prayer. That makes sense? The casting of lots was simply part of their prayer. They asked, they trusted God to provide the answer, and he did. 
Luke closes this section with a simple and sober concluding statement that the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. I think from a human perspective, Matthias was a good choice because he only had one name. This other guy, Joseph Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, that's all very confusing. Well, how do we respond rightly to all of this, to what this section of Scripture reveals? Such an interesting little moment in history. Allow me to suggest two simple lessons that stand out to me. You, you may see some other things than I, than I see here, um, and, and maybe you'll share those with your life group this week as you discuss all of this. But here's the first one that stands out to me, that, and it's that the selection of leaders for the church today is still a matter that must be approached carefully and prayerfully in full dependence on the directive of the Holy Spirit. Following the day of Pentecost, there is no further indication that the church cast lots in any of its decision-making. And why is that? It's because when the Holy Spirit was given, there was no further need for the casting of lots. The apostles taught the church by the power and enablement of the Holy Spirit. Their teaching was added to the teaching of the prophets, gave shape to the Bible. Today we can look to the Bible for direction because it was breathed out by God the Holy Spirit, and it is fully authoritative and fully sufficient. To Timothy, Paul laid out the qualifications for an overseer or an elder in the church. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. At LifePoint Church, we are an elder-led congregation. And right now, we're looking for the man who will take the place that is being vacated by Freddie Williams. Now, please don't think that I'm equating Freddie with Judas. <laughs> I'm most certainly not. Freddie has church, served this church faithfully, uh, quietly, with integrity, with a heart of deep love for God and for each of you. But because Freddie and Robin are moving to Idaho, 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 I don't know, we now have a need for at least one new elder and maybe more. And it's this passage of Scripture that I just read to you in First Timothy that we use here at LifePoint as our primary filter for the selection and the appointment of elders. And we add two further qualifications, which is that a candidate must be a LifePoint partner, which is our word for member, 
and that he must have been a part of our church for at least one year. And during that year or more, he has to have demonstrated godly character and lifestyle and fruitful engagement in the ministry of our church. So let me just point out here that in the process that led to the selection of Matthias, the whole church was involved in identifying candidates, and the whole church prayed. Jesus made the choice. There's hardly a decision more important than the selection of an elder. It's really on a par with selecting a pastor. So I'm asking you, church, each of you individually and all of you corporately, to consider the men of our church in light of the criteria here in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, and to pray and to ask God who he wants to become the next elder in our church. I really am asking. I'm not just blabbing up here. I'm asking you to engage the process with us and let us know who you think in our congregation meets those qualifications. The second lesson is this. Not all not all who profess belief in Jesus will persevere in faith until the end. Not all who profess belief in Jesus will persevere in faith until the end. As I mentioned earlier, it's shocking to think that, that Judas Iscariot was there from the event of Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan. It's hard to digest the realization that when it came time to select and appoint those 12 who would be his apostles, that Jesus chose Judas in the full knowledge that he was the one who would betray him. It's nearly unthinkable that Judas was with Jesus and among the other apostles and the larger band of disciples for three years, witnessed Jesus' miracles, saw him exercise authority over demons, give sight to the blind, open deaf ears, make the lame walk, heal every kind of disease, even raise the dead. And that he sat day after day under Jesus' teaching and still, after all of that, did not personally believe in him did not personally believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we can shake our heads and we can click our tongues at Judas, but each of us has to respond honestly and humbly in full recognition that each of us has the potential and the opportunity every day and in every way to go the way of Judas. Never allow yourself to think that simply because you attended church every Sunday, sat through Sunday school, heard all of the biblical stories, sat through catechism and confirmation, professed personal faith in Jesus Christ, were baptized, became a church member, eventually made your way into leadership, became a deacon or an elder or even a pastor, that any of that secures your salvation. and your eternal reward. I've said to you before, going to McDonald's never made anyone a Big Mac. It might make you look like one and smell like one, but it'll never make you a Big Mac. Here's a dietician down here shaking her head. 
In the same way, going to church every day of the week will never itself make you a Christian. Judas reminds us that even being part of Jesus' inner circle can never ensure that you are a genuine believer. And remember that Judas didn't lose his salvation. The witness of Scripture is that he never had it. After all of that, Jesus taught a parable about a man who was sowing seed. You can read it in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. Some of that seed fell on rocky ground where there was not much soil so that the seed actually germinated, but it didn't establish roots. And the hot sun came up and the sprouted seed withered and wilted. When Jesus interpreted this parable for his disciples, when he came to the the part of that parable that dealt with the seed sown on rocky ground, he said it represented those who, when they hear the word of God, immediately receive it with joy. They're joyful for a while, but they never put down roots. The sprout never becomes a plant. It never matures. And when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, they immediately fall away. What a great picture of Judas. What a great picture of many people who hear the gospel respond for a while, but then fade away. Remember when we were studying 1 John, that John said, described some people who left the church, and he said they, they went out from us because they were never part of us. Judas was like that. Many who claim to be Christians are like that as well. See, it's, 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 it's by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that any of us are saved. None of us can come to the Father unless he draws us. And if your faith in Jesus Christ is genuine, then here's what is true of you. You will endure by his grace and in that faith until the very end. It doesn't mean you won't have doubts. It doesn't mean that you'll never sin. It doesn't mean you, you'll never make stupid decisions. It doesn't mean that you'll receive public accolades for your spirituality, but it does mean that to your final breath, you will remain faithful to the one who is perfectly faithful to you. And I might say, you will remain faithful to the one who is perfectly faithful to you and only because he's perfectly faithful to you. So the question as we close is this, are you personally believing in Jesus Christ today? Have you caught the real disease? Are you sinking your roots down into him and drawing up nourishment from him? Are you maturing and becoming fruitful? These questions are absolutely essential. The the example of Judas, the, the life of Judas comes as a severe warning to us. Make sure that you're in Christ and not just in church. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, these, uh, <laughs> these scriptures are so powerful. I pray that you would sift out my words and, and by your spirit apply your words to our hearts, to our lives. 
And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who is not absolutely certain of their salvation, that today would be the day when they make sure and that by your spirit you would draw them to yourself and into genuine faith and genuine rebirth, genuine transformation. May that be true of all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.